Good morning again, everyone. Uh, so glad to have you with us. If you're a guest and haven't gotten the chance to meet you this morning, my name's Aaron Glover, and I'm the pastor here at FBC Truth. And we just want to thank you for joining us in worship. And for those of you who joined online as well, thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, last week, I wasn't here. I was enjoying the mountains of Montana. And let me tell you, I have never seen anything like those mountains. We were in this little cabin. We would go outside and look, and there was just mountains surrounding us on every side and little snow caps at the top of the mountain there. It was, it was just something that we don't, we don't have that here in East Texas. It, it felt like a whole different world. But as we were getting ready to leave, we woke up, and apparently it had been snowing since 4 a.m., so you can imagine three or four hours of snow packed onto the car. And I'm also very thankful that it doesn't snow that much here in, in Tyler. I mean, the last time we had it snow, we were shut down for a couple of weeks, but it was something amazing. It was just a great time for me and Emily to go and, and refresh and, and refill ourselves and, and spend time together and spend time with God. It was just a, a wonderful, wonderful time. So um, we're back at it this week, though. Last two weeks ago, so not last week. If you were here last week, you got to enjoy Brother Robert Carter as he brought the simple gospel to us last week. But two weeks ago, we heard the words of Jesus during the high priestly prayer. If you remember in John 17, and specifically, we were looking at the portion where Jesus was comforting his disciples as he was leaving. If you remember, he had promised as he was going to the cross and then eventually ascending to the Father, he promised not to leave them alone as orphans, but he was going to send his Holy Spirit. And last week, we looked at a message that, that looked at that relationship, that new fellowship between the Holy Spirit and believers in Christ. We looked at how he is in us and we are in him. We looked at the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son and, and us and the Son, and we saw how we're just all so interconnected because of Christ Jesus. And this week, we're going to continue on this narrative as we're in this series called Follow Me. If you remember, we're looking at the life, the teachings, and the miracles of Jesus as if we were there to witness them, right? We're considering everything as if we were eyewitnesses to this account. And specifically, we're looking through the eyes of Peter. He's kind of been our, our main guy that we've been looking at Christ through because Peter's just in all the thick action. That's where he is. So we've kind of been trying to look at things from his perspective. And we're going to do the same thing this week as we go into Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where we're going to look at tonight, and, or to this morning, late in the evening for them. And we're going to see the events that lead up to his arrest. And we're going to then see how he responds to this betrayal and this arrest. And we're going to compare this man in a garden with another man in a garden as we go. We'll keep that in mind. So just to kind of set the scene for us as we're uh, getting into this today, Remember, Jesus had just finished his high priestly prayer. And then according to John, you go from chapter 17 to chapter 18. John chapter 1 says that they go across uh, the Kidron and they go into a garden. We know that reading in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they're going over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is following right after that high priestly prayer that John tells us about. And then the other Gospel accounts tell us that they sang a hymn as they went, so there's a lot of things going on. Whenever you read uh, this portion of Scripture, I, I encourage you to not just read one of the Gospels, but go back and, and read them all and see 
the different aspects that each of the writers focused on as they tell uh, this narrative. So again, as they go, the other Gospels also tell us something else. I think it comes in important in John's Gospel in a little bit, but as they're going, Jesus tells the disciples that when their shepherd is struck down, that the sheep will be scattered. And he predicts that Peter, again, will betray him. And of course, whenever he says this, you know, Peter always wants to be the one to say, Lord, I will never do that. And Jesus reminds him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter says, no, I'll lay down my life for you. Even if they all go, I won't. I will lay down my life for you, right? Peter, probably like most of us, would be trying to prove how devoted he was to Jesus. Even though Jesus, the Lord, has said, you will do this, we're still in, he's still in denial about this trying to prove himself. And so after this, they go to the garden and we see this time of agonizing prayer. Jesus has taken a couple of the disciples a little bit further along with him. And he goes into the evening and he's praying and praying and agonizing over this. And he goes away from the disciples a little bit. And then when he comes back, he finds them asleep. So he has to wake them up. He goes again and continues to pray, and he's troubled in his spirit. He's troubled greatly, as if he's sweating great drops of blood as he's praying. And as Jesus is agonizing in his prayer, every time he comes back, he finds the disciples sleeping. You can imagine, though, this is a, a long night for the disciples. They're, they're trying to pray. They're, you know, the flesh or the, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. They Every time you're trying to pray and be faithful, you just keep getting tired and falling asleep. And as Jesus is going and dealing with these things, and he's praying, but Jesus has set himself on his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. He is submitting to this. He knows what he's about to embark on. He knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to take on the full punishment for our sin. Jesus has nothing to do with sin. He's never experienced sin. He has no sin. He knows what he's about to do, and he's agonizing over this, but he chooses to do this willingly. And the last time that Jesus comes and wakes all the disciples up, you, you can imagine, again, Jesus has come to you and woken you up. He's come to you and woken you up, and then he says, Arise, for the betrayer is at hand. So you're getting up. Just imagine this. Jesus has kind of woken you up a couple of times. You're supposed to be praying, but you're really tired. And you wake up and all of a sudden you hear a crowd of people coming towards you. And you notice one of them come forward out of the crowd. And it's one of the, one of the people who's been with you for years. Judas is at the front of the crowd who Jesus just a few hours ago at the supper had sent him away and said, what you're about to do, go and do quickly. And Judas is out front with this crowd leading them come to Jesus. can't imagine what was going through their minds at that time. This was no small crowd that came with him. If, if it was an actual a band of soldiers, as some of the scriptures say, if it was a detachment, it could have been dozens, if not a couple of hundred men with Judas. We're going to pick up and read in John chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 or yes, verses 1 through 12. And then we're going to break this down for a little bit. 
It said when Jesus had spoken these words, remember he had finished the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden, Gethsemane, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, with his disciples, and this whole detachment of troops comes after him. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So they go to lay hands on him according to the synoptic gospels. And in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. A couple of things I want us to note in this passage. Again, try to think about this as if you were there with Jesus. Suddenly this group of men come out. They're not coming out as a friendly crowd. They've got weapons and clubs and torches you can tell they mean harm as they come to you. And the betrayer knew where to find Jesus, right? John tells us that, that Jesus would often go there to this garden with his disciples. This was a place that they gathered very intimately, most likely. So only someone who was on that intimate circle would have known where to go to betray him. Probably a place that Jesus might have explained earlier that evening or that day that they were going to go there after they observed the Passover meal. But again, Judas comes with this detachment of troops. And, and this could have been, like I said, dozens of men, could have even been hundreds of men, had it been a full detachment of troops. And when he comes to betray him, John doesn't mention this in his gospel, but I think it's important for us to note, when he comes to betray him, Judas does so with a kiss. A kiss is a sign of intimacy. It's a sign of love. It's a sign of friendship, right? And Jesus even says, do you betray me with a kiss? The son of man? Now Judas was using this as his mark, right? Judas had made plans with them and he told 
the captors, he said, the one I kiss, that's, that's who we're going to arrest. That's who we're after. But John is telling us that another aspect of this whenever he's betrayed. I want us to, to look at this real quick. So moving on, as Jesus goes into this, there's four things that really jump out to me in this scene. Some things about Jesus, how he responds, what he does with what happens to him. Jesus went to this place knowing that he would be betrayed. How many of us can say, if we knew that betrayal was awaiting us right there, we would willingly head right into that? How many of us would sign up for that? Not me. But Jesus didn't run from this moment. Jesus went straight to this moment. And that doesn't mean he didn't agonize over this, right? We know that he agonized over this in prayer. He asked his father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that God had a very specific plan for this, and his will was to fulfill the plan of God in this. And when his betrayer comes, Jesus is not hiding. He's right where he's supposed to be. And I want to think back real quick. Back to the Garden of Eden. I picked up this note as I was reading. I want to say this came from Kent Hughes, a commentary he did. When he's talking about the comparison between Adam in the garden and Jesus in the garden. Think back with me real quick. So Jesus didn't hide. But in, chapter, in verse 4, John 18, 4, it says that he came forward and asked them, whom do you seek? Right? Think back and we look at Adam. What happened with Adam in the garden? Adam heard that God was walking in the garden coming, and what did he do? He hid. He hid from God. He covered himself. He stayed away so that God had to call out for him. But this is not what Jesus does. We see the difference between Adam and Christ is that Jesus is in the garden, knows he's going to be betrayed, and stands firm. Faces what God has for him. He is the sinless man. He is the shameless man. Jesus has no reason to hide. So he does not hide. Looking on, is Judas's kiss marked him. When he asked them, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And I love this right here. When he declares, when he says, your Bible translation probably says, I am he. But if you go and look at it in the Greek, the, the wording there is, ego a me, which means I am. This is the name that God revealed to Moses whenever God sent Moses to go talk to Pharaoh. He said, who shall I say has sent me? And God said, I am. When Jesus is declaring this, yes, he is declaring that he is indeed Jesus of Nazareth, but he is also declaring that he is God. This is one of those powerful I am statements. And if we wonder, is it really one of those powerful I am statements? Look what happens to the entire detachment of men. When he speaks, they step back and fall. Simply at the declaration and power of his name. It causes them to fall. It causes them to fall and, 
and it messes everything up so much that Jesus has to again ask them, who do you seek? Notice that Jesus is the one initiating this sequence here. But this also goes to show us these men have no power over Jesus. They only have what he allows. These men do not have power over him other than what he gives up. Remember, Jesus gave himself over to be betrayed. Jesus was allowing this to happen. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Fall back. Again, compare this with Adam. When we look back in, in, in Genesis, he was hiding from God and God called out to him. But this man stands, declares himself and asks them, who are you looking for? Whom do you see? And they say his name. And he says, I am. He's saying, I am Jesus. I am the man. I am God. That is his declaration to this. And I also love seeing... When he does this, if you continue that verse right there at eight, he says, if you seek me, let these men go. Isn't this exactly what Jesus Christ does for each and every one of us? He stands in our place so that we can go free. He's the only innocent man in that garden that evening, and yet he's the one being treated as if he's broken all the laws. The only innocent man out of probably what could be hundreds. And he says, you let them go free. You've come for me. That's exactly what Jesus Christ declares even unto the law. The righteous requirement of the law is death for sin. And what Jesus declares to that righteous requirement is, I will die. You let them go free. That's exactly what he has done for us in dying. Again, comparing Jesus to Adam. When Adam sinned, right, he hid from God, but he also covered himself. But that covering wouldn't suffice because we know that the wage of sin is death. Something has to die. So what did God cover Adam with in Genesis chapter 3? He gave them animal skins. Now think about it. If you have an animal skin, what happened to the animal? It had to die. It had to die. Now, animal skin is not the whole living animal. Animal skin is just part of an animal that comes off after the animal has died. Mankind's sin required a covering. And God showed us that all the way back in Genesis. But let me tell you something. Jesus Christ is indeed the true covering. His blood is the true covering for sin. He's the only innocent man in the garden who is willingly submitting himself as though he were guilty of all sin. Let these go free. That's what he says. And finally, I want us to see this last instance that happens here. I think this is the most important thing today. We see how Peter reacts that when the other gospels tell us that they go to seize Jesus, 
Peter reacts in, in a moment of, of just craziness, right? I think in this moment, I can't help but wonder what was going through Peter's mind. He might have been thinking, this is my chance to show Jesus that I will die for him. This is my chance. So Peter reaches up and cuts off the ear of Malchus. Now, we don't know if he was aiming for the ear. He might have been aiming somewhere else and must have had a bad shot. Who knows? What was going through his mind? What was happening here? But I think it's interesting that Jesus tells him to stop. He stops the whole scene. If you think about what's actually going on here, if, if, some, if Peter reached out and cut somebody, why wouldn't the whole detachment troop seize on him right then? Why would they wait even an instant? But Jesus stops the scene. And he actually heals the man's ear. How many of us can say that we would willingly heal the wound of one of our captors? That's why Jesus had come, though, is to heal the wounds that we had brought upon ourselves. But Jesus declares this to Peter. Luke tells us that he heals in Luke chapter 22. But in John, I love this declaration. When he says that, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus was not there to fight these soldiers. Jesus was there to be betrayed, to be captured, to be wrongfully judged and eventually murdered. That's the payment for our sins. So when he says, this cup that the Father has given me, what cup is he talking about? He's talking about a cup that is a metaphor for the wrath and the judgment and the punishment against sin. It's the cup that you and I deserve. You and I deserve to drink the full wrath of God against sin because we're the ones that sin. And yet Jesus drank that cup. Why? So that He could give you and me the cup that He earned. The water of eternal life. He says this in Revelation 21. He says, To the thirsty... I will give from the spring of the water of life. He drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the water of life. If you remember, whenever Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he was talking about living water. She didn't understand what he meant. And he said, whoever drinks the water that I will give him, it will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He drank the cup of wrath that we could drink living water, that it would become a spring living inside of us, His Holy Spirit given to us, which is the comfort He promised His disciples. He drank our death that we could drink His life. Again, imagine seeing this. Imagine this scene. Jesus is standing there facing his betrayers. A detachment of troops has come out against him and he's not afraid. He is facing them down and he asks them, who do you seek? I am he. And he tells them, you've come for me. Let them go. And he tells Peter, I'm here to drink the cup that my father has given me. 
This is the man that we follow. And as believers in Christ, we who have believed in him are called to walk like him. We are called to pray and stay and face adversity. To face persecution in this world. It will come. We are called to declare Christ and his truth. To declare the name of Jesus. So that others may be set free. And we are called to drink from the water of life that we may live and be alive and enjoy Him forevermore. Amen? Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to You today in awe of Your Son, Jesus. We come to You in awe of what He did for us, God. We thank You that He fulfilled all righteousness, God. That when He was tested, He was not found wanting. He was found strong in You. Resolved to fulfill Your will. He had decided to be betrayed and to willingly walk to His death that we could come alive in Him. Lord, I pray that you will stir in our hearts your Holy Spirit that has been given to us through Him. Help us to stand. Help us to face adversity. Help us commit ourselves to your will, God. Help us declare the name and the truth of Jesus as the only name by which mankind can be saved. Use us to share your gospel that others may be set free and help us enjoy you forevermore. Lord, I also ask for those who don't know Christ in this way, who have not yet believed in him, who haven't come to him yet. God, I pray that you would move in their hearts, move in their spirits. Show them that you have done everything necessary. Show them that all they need is to believe in your son, to turn away from themselves and to look upon him and they shall be saved. We love you. We thank you. And we pray all of this in the name of our Lord, our Savior, and our King Jesus. Amen. And at this time, we're going to move into our invitation.